Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today our student pastor, Ethan Smith, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Good morning. If you have your Bible, then go ahead and grab it. We are going to be in the book of John for our time together. John chapter 19, and we will look specifically at verse 30, but we'll actually look at the entire context around that. So 28 through 30 is where we will be for our time together. We're going to look at a verse that carries so much weight that is so precious to every believer. These are the last words that Jesus utters from the cross as he breathes his last. And as we're going to see, they are not an admission of defeat, but a declaration of victory. Words matter. Words matter. And I think one of the biggest lies that we tell kids is sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can never hurt me. Words do hurt, and words can heal. Words convey meaning, and sometimes just a few words can communicate deep meaning that a lot of words just cannot adequately express. For example, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to a wedding yesterday out of town. If you've ever been to a wedding, then the, the words you're waiting for at the close are, I do. Two words, three letters, and yet in those words, there's a deep meaning. There's hopes, there's dreams, there's joy, all encapsulated in two small words. A mother looking into the face for the first time of her newborn baby says the words, I love you. And those three words communicate far more, there's far more in her soul than just three simple words. The hopes and and dreams of an 18-year-old, not just the 18-year-old, but her family who have worked hard for years, comes in a letter, she opens it up and says, congratulations, you have been accepted. So much meaning in just a few words. And the text we're going to consider this morning contains the final words of Jesus in his earthly life. It's the completion of the work that he came to do. It sums up his 30 plus year life, his three years of ministry, and it contains our greatest hope for the present and our security for the future. All that meaning, and it's three words in our English Bible, but in Greek it's actually only one word. It's the word tetelestai, or as we just sang beautifully, it is 
finished. So for our time together, I want us to to think through what exactly he means, Jesus means in this statement. What is finished? Why is it finished? And how should we then live because it is finished? And if we get this right, then our lives should rightly be lived in joy and assurance and in holiness. And if we get this wrong, then we will miss out on what the Lord desires for us. So my hope is that we would understand the text and to see how it applies to our lives, because I don't think we actually understand any text of Scripture if it's not actually applied to our lives. So hopefully you are in John chapter 19, and we will look at verses 28 through 30. The text says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Verse 30, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, And gave up his spirit. So let me pray. We will dive in. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. God, we love you because you first loved us. And we see your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I pray that as we look at this text, as we consider this text, may it not just be understood, may it be understood, may it be loved deeply in our heart and applied to our lives, that we might be transformed by the finished work of Christ, because our hope lies entirely on his work. So help us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. (laughs) So at the close of his passion, in which Jesus has been falsely accused. He's been condemned in a kangaroo court in which he just goes from place to place. They already know they're going to find him guilty. He's been beaten profusely. He's been forced to carry his own cross. Then he was nailed to the cross. He's endured scorning. He's endured mockery. And finally, he has come to the end. It's time for the work to be completed. And the text says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. So he was aware when the work was done. He was not left hoping, man, I hope I, I, hope I did this right. He knew. He wasn't like the, the student in class where the teacher says, hey, you got two minutes before the test is over and we're going to take it up. And he's just like busily, oh my goodness, I got a circle, 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 just hoping he gets some right. That's not Jesus at all. He knows when the work is done. And what's interesting is that when it says, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, that finished is the same word he's about to utter. It's the same word to telestai. And he says, I thirst. I thirst. And the text tells us, John tells us, that's a fulfillment 
of Scripture. So, so what Scripture is he fulfilling? It's a good question. John has already established immediately before our text. In John chapter 19, verse 24, you can see there's a, a quotation. Verse 24, this was to fill, fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is a reference to Psalm 22. And if you know Psalm 22, it is filled with allusions towards the suffering Messiah. And in Psalm 22, verse 15, we get this graphic phrase. Psalm 22, 15 says, My tongue sticks to my jaws. Like, that that paints a picture, doesn't it? Like, the, the tongue is sticking to the inside of his mouth because there's no saliva. Have you ever tried to eat a pack of saltine crackers without drinking any water? You ever try to do that? Like that was one of the, the random silly games that we used to play in middle school because, you know, middle school guys are so clever. We like to do all the fun things, right? So if you've never done it, we would, we would get a, I guess it was a four-pack of crackers, and you'd eat the first one, that's fine, I got this. You eat the second one, all right, I got this. Then the third one, you're like... And then you can't even swallow, you can't talk for the fourth one, right? Because that, the salt has just basically absorbed all of the moisture in your mouth. We would laugh at this. But this is not a laughing matter for Christ. His suffering is so complete, so total that he doesn't even have enough saliva in his mouth to speak. And so he asks for a drink. You can imagine him kind of coughing this, I, I thirst. He asks for a drink. And the soldiers nearby, I assume someone, offer him sour wine to drink. Now what's interesting is this is actually the third time a drink was offered to Jesus. And this sour wine is not the same as the other two drinks he was offered. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 34, he's offered wine mixed with gall. And they offer, them, offer this to him to mock him. Because this combination could be poisonous. So they, hey, hey, drink this. And Jesus refuses to drink it. He's not going to die by poison. He's going to die on the cross. It's not the same drink as Mark chapter 15, verse 23. That was wine mixed with myrrh. And the myrrh and the wine made it a, a very mild sedative. So it would alleviate pain. So I think most of us, if you're in that type of grueling pain, you would want some sort of sedative. Jesus refuses it. Why? Because he is going to absorb every ounce of suffering necessary. This sour wine in John chapter 19 is, is simply that. It's just sour wine. It would quench his thirst enough to say one final word. So a guard... Someone close dips a sponge into the sour wine. They attach it to a pole so they can bring it to the mouth of Jesus. And what's interesting, because there's no accidental details in the Bible, is what they used. 
they put the sour wine on a hyssop branch. Why? Maybe it was close by. It was there. They used it. I doubt anybody paid it any attention. No one cared. But what's interesting is that hyssop was what the Israelites used in Exodus, 20, or Exodus 12, verse 22, to paint the blood over their doorpost for the first Passover. So when hyssop was used there, they're painting the blood of the lamb so that judgment would pass over Israel and go to Egypt. Do you remember the death of the firstborn? But in this moment, hyssop is present when God is not passing over his firstborn. His firstborn is being slaughtered so that those who believe would be passed over in judgment. Jesus receives the sour wine. It moistens his mouth enough so he can say that that wonderful word, that final word, a word of victory, a word of completion. John 19, verse 30, he says, It is finished. His work was done. He made his final proclamation, then the text tells us he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I love that. He gave up his spirit. No one took his life from him. He was in control the entire time. When his work was done, he gave up his spirit. People had tried to kill him throughout his ministry. Didn't happen. Why? Because he had work to do. Now the work was finished, so he gave up his spirit. So this is the final scene, anticipating what's going to come, and that's the resurrection. But one question that remains, we've already hinted a little bit at the answer, is what is it that was finished? Okay, this text is pretty straightforward, right? What was finished? And we've already said that it was the work that he came to do. That's what's finished. The work that he came to do. And I want to break this down into to two categories that can be distinguished from one another, but they certainly cannot be separated. One is the upholding of the glory of God. Jesus came to be glorified and to uphold the glory of God. And the, the second is the salvation of sinners. That was accomplished. That was finished at the cross. They're not opposed to one another. They're linked together. Salvation of sinners is ultimately for the glory of of God. So, so how, how are the glory of God and the salvation of sinners upheld, shown, purchased at the cross? Well, throughout the Bible, the word most often or very often used to describe God is not an, a new word if you've been at this church for any amount of time. It's the word holy. It means that he's different. He's of a different kind than us. He is not like us. He is the creator. We are 
the creatures. He is above us. He is perfect. We are in his image. He is not in our image. And along with this otherness, he is completely righteous. He is morally perfect and is himself the standard of what is right. And for God to be holy means that he must act in accordance with his holiness. Which means he must punish, judge, whatever is contrary against his holiness. Are you you tracking with that? So he must judge sin. If he doesn't, then he's not righteous. If he doesn't, then he's not good. If he doesn't, he's not glorious. And this will never be the case. Therefore, God must must punish sin to uphold his own glory. And this he does in the death of Christ. Sin is so, so heinous to God. So, So against his very being that the only just retribution is an eternity in hell. Like there's... We can belittle sin. Like sin is infinitely heinous before God. And if God doesn't punish sin, he's not holy. Just like our our ceasing to breathe would mean that we cease to live, so God would cease to be God if he did not judge sin. So at the cross, sin is justly punished in Jesus Christ. So, so in his passion, which is far more than just physical pain, but I think if we're honest, if we took a look at what Jesus actually endured, I think it would make us sick. Just the physical torment that he took on. But in his passion, there's more than just physical pain being inflicted. He is bearing in his body, an eternity of hell. And in that moment, God is shouting to the world, hey, this is how bad your sin is. This is how bad your sin actually is is that it takes the death of the infinitely perfect, sinless Son of God in order to see you forgiven. It's as if he's screaming out, I will not lessen my holiness, I will not lower my standard for anyone. His glory is upheld because his holiness and his justice are satisfied in the death of Christ. So when when Jesus says it is finished, he meant that the glory of God was rightly magnified, that this is being satisfied in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection so that God could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ, as Romans 3, 26 tells us. And at the cross... Not only is the glory of God upheld because the worth of God is shown to be what it rightly is. 
salvation is purchased for sinners. When Jesus was on the cross, he was nailed there as our substitute. He wasn't there merely as an example of selfless love. He wasn't a religious teacher that got caught up with some people he shouldn't have. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was there in our place. His death is our death so that his life could be our life. And as he declared, his work was fully done. And what we we cannot forget is that our salvation actually took more than his death. If all it took was the death of Jesus, then God could have sent Jesus as a 33-year-old in Jerusalem to be crucified. But that's not what happened, right? Christ came as a baby. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was born like every other child. He grew up like every other child. He worked, he played, he learned. And the difference is that he did not sin. And that's absolutely crucial. As Hebrews tells us, he was tempted in every way that we are. There's nothing new under the sun. He was tempted with power. He was tempted with fame and celebrity, lust, hunger, frustration, and all the rest. And yet, he did not sin. He overcame all that temptation. He lived in holiness. He obeyed the Father completely, actively fulfilling the Scripture. And he passively avoided sin and endured what was necessary for our salvation. Both of them are necessary. His sinlessness and his righteousness. Because we are saved through a great exchange. So at the cross, just bear with me for a second. At the cross, Jesus takes on our sin. He he takes it on himself and he pays it in full. It's as if he went to the bank and said, hey, let let me see their account. All right, this is how much they owe. I'm going to pay that. So in Christ, our record of sin is gone. It's forgiven. But not only that, not only does he take on our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. The righteousness that he merited, that he obeyed, that he earned. It's as if at that bank account, what's his total? This is how much he owes? All right, I'm going to pay that. And you know what? Go ahead and put his name on my bank account. So that the right standing that Jesus has, my name's now there. His money, in a sense, is my money. His credit is my credit. His right standing with God is our reconciliation with God. His sonship is our adoption. And this all happens through faith. So when Jesus declares boldly that it is finished, he means that everything necessary for our final and full salvation has been accomplished. Nothing is lacking. Nothing. Once we are saved and placed in Christ, we cannot be lost. What God has put together, nothing can separate. Nothing can dissolve our union with Christ. No one can, Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. If that's not enough, then 
No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand because I and the Father are one, John chapter 10, 28 through 29. Christ is the one who began the good work, and so he'll be faithful to complete it, Philippians 1, chapter 6. That in salvation, he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And according to Romans 8, 30, in that chain, that glorious chain, those who are justified, past tense, verb tenses matter in Scripture, those who are justified, their glorification in the future is so certain that he uses the past tense. Those who are justified will be glorified. It is certain. Because when Jesus says it is finished, he meant it. He meant it. To think that a true Christian can be lost is to make Jesus a liar. If a true believer can be finally lost means that the work was not really finished. It means there's still something lacking. He didn't do enough. He, got, he, did, he did enough to get us there, but he didn't do enough to keep us there. It means God is, is impotent. It means we believe something is stronger than God. And it means that we are to live in a constant state of anxiety every minute, not knowing where we're going. At this, is this minute, am I, am I going to heaven now? And then if I make a mistake in a couple minutes, am I then going to, to hell? That's not a joyful place to be. That's not peace with God. It makes salvation ultimately by works because your end is determined not by the work of Christ, but by your own merit and keeping yourself saved. Grace becomes irrelevant. Christianity has nothing to offer any different than every other world religion. If you are in Christ, you should have every confidence that you will endure to the end. God will not let his children go. We will certainly endure. In fact, this is how John tells us that we will know who truly is a Christian, right? First John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Those who leave and never return, John says, they never belonged. Those who continue, Christ will keep. It's not the one who starts the race, it's the one who finishes the race. But here's the wonderful truth. Christ is the one that keeps us. We have only to daily look to him and to follow him. Christ has done everything to secure our salvation. God hasn't adopted us on a temporary basis to see how well we behave. Every one of our sins, past, present, and future, were placed on Christ when he died in our place as a substitute. So let me, let me say it this way. It's, it's 2023, right? All right. I think so. It's about to be 2024. Christ died almost 2,000 years ago. I'm not very good at math, but I think it's pretty close to that. 
How many of your sins were future sins when Christ died? I'll answer that. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. So now that you're in Christ, why do you think he's going to withhold grace and forgiveness just because you still have sin that's going to happen in the future? Why are some left out simply because they haven't happened yet? When he said it is finished, he really meant that it is finished. Now, as we're going to see as we get to the application, that doesn't give us a license to sin, but it's that reality that propels us to holiness. And this isn't, like, this isn't some abstract doctrine that we can, over a cup of coffee, sit in comfortable cha- uh, chairs, hey, we, let's agree to disagree, it's not that big a deal. Like, this is one of the most practical doctrines for our lives. Like, this is what holds us when everything is crumbling all around us. The reality that Christ has done what is necessary to not only begin salvation, but to complete it is what gives us an abiding hope that cannot be taken away. It's like a, a child looking up to her, to her father. There's a storm going outside. She, she, she sees it in the window. She hears the boom of thunder. She sees the lightning streaks. The rain is, is raining sideways. The tree is bent over, and she's scared to death. And she can, in that moment, look at her father sitting there. He doesn't have to say a word. He just looks at her and smiles, and she knows everything is going to be okay. This doctrine is, is where the exhausted mother looks when the house is a wreck. The dog will not start, stop barking at everything. Right? The kids are fighting with each other. She's already lost her temper twice before breakfast. In that moment... She looks to the cross and breathes out. Because her salvation rests not in her weak hands, but in the omnipotent hands of her Savior. You don't want your salvation resting in your hands. You don't. And some of you are struggling with sin or with doubt of your salvation. And man, that's a painful place to be. But what often happens is we, we spend so much time focusing on ourselves, on our own struggles, on our own questions, on our own failures, and we spend very little time looking at the finished work of Christ. We can say with our mouth that salvation is by grace through faith and then act as if it all depends on our being good enough to stay in the family. As if God is ready to unadopt his children because they're struggling. That's a That's a blasphemous view of God to think that he cares so little about his children. If you could lose your salvation, then you would. If you could lose it, then you would lose it. You are not strong enough to keep yourself in Christ any more than you were strong enough to save yourself in the first place. This is what it means in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that Christ saves to the uttermost. That's not just far-reaching, it's uttermost saving completely. He doesn't start something and then give up. He saves completely. And of course, this, this biblical doctrine should not surprise any of us. 
Our statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message 2000, summarizes it like this. All true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. End quote. That's our, that's our statement of faith. True believers in Christ shall be kept, not because they're doing enough, but because Christ has done everything. He's accomplished their salvation, and nothing is left undone. It is finished. So, so how should we respond? All right, four responses for four different kind of life situations, if you will. The first it's for the believer, all right? You're, you're here, you're listening, you're a believer in Christ, you love the Lord, you're walking in obedience to Him. Here's the application. Keep on. <laughs> Keep your eyes on your Savior. Follow the leading of our Good Shepherd. Pursue holiness and joy. Love your neighbor. Continue on your journey home, resting in the finished work of Christ, and be thankful for the gift that He's given to you. Secondly, for the believer who's in a hard season, whether you're struggling with sin, whether it's sickness, death of a loved one, problems at home or at work, here's the application. Look to Jesus. In your suffering, Jesus has not abandoned you. He's not waiting for you to get your act together and then, hey, maybe we'll talk. He's there with you. He's holding out his hand to bring you closer. When a child is sick, the parents don't get frustrated at the child. They don't begin to resent the child because they're struggling. Well, he isn't playing like all the other kids. Well, yeah, he's sick. The parent's heart actually goes out more towards the child, right? In love, in sympathy. How much more does our Heavenly Father love us and love those in the midst of difficulties? So that when you're struggling, when you're in sin, and you're, you're fighting and you're fighting and you're fighting, the heart of Christ is there with you all the more. You might not see His hand, but He's there. You may not understand why everything is happening, but He is there with you. And, and looking to Jesus, I'll tell you, it won't magically make everything all better. Your marriage won't be fixed overnight. Your boss won't become all of a sudden a nice person. Your, your children will now gladly and immediately obey every command that you give. Your addiction to pornography or alcohol won't simply vanish. But you can face it all knowing that the most important reality, namely your relationship with God, has been settled because of Christ. And, and this reality is to propel you forward in your fight, daily getting up, trying to fight sin, put it to death, and pursue Christ. Day by day, in the, in the pain, with tears, 
we follow our Savior who gave his life for us. Thirdly, there are, there are some who see the cross of Christ and the finished work of, of Jesus as a license to do whatever you want. God gives more grace, so why not continue to sin? I don't need to work hard. Why not continue to watch pornography? Why not stay at home, play video games all day? Why would I want to be holy when the world has so much to do? And if you you can continue to live in sin with no issues at all in your soul, no, no hatred for sin, no love for the Lord, I mean, red flags should be shooting up. That's a dangerous place to be. Because at, at best, it reveals a deep misunderstanding of the cross, and at worst, you may not actually be a Christian. To, to live like this is like being a first-class passenger on the RMS Titanic. You can have all the amenities that you want, every pleasure that you could ever desire, and the ship is sinking. If you don't repent and turn to Christ, then you may just find that you never truly believed in Christ to begin with. And when you find out, it might be too late. So we need to take a look at our own soul, your own soul, especially before we partake of the Lord's Supper? Are there things you need to to repent of, to trust Christ? Man, take heed of your soul. Don't go down with the ship. Because of the work of Christ, we are called to holiness. The finished work of Christ does not excuse us from holiness. It actually enables us to be holy. The grace that saves is the grace that will make us holy. That's why Paul can say in in a span of about three verses in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own works. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. And then he can say, for you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance that you may walk in them. The same grace that is a gift that saves, will be the grace used to sanctify you and to walk in good works. The God who gave us the gift of salvation is the same God who sanctifies. You don't get one without the other. You don't get salvation and then disregard holiness because you belittle the work of Christ. You belittle Christ... It demonstrates that your heart is not on God. And you're playing games. And you can, you can fool me, you can fool Pastor Daniel, but you, you're not fooling God. Don't try to. Don't play that game. Repent and trust in Christ. And fourthly, there are some in here and you know you are not a follower of Christ. You might have a a laundry list of reasons as to why you don't want to turn to Christ. Whether you think you can do it all on your own, maybe you enjoy the pleasures offered by the world, or maybe you you think on kind of the other end, like, I'm just not good enough. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. 
I'm beyond the saving reach of Christ. And in any case, and a thousand others that could be mentioned, my plea is to look at Christ on the cross. Hear, hear his words from the cross as he, as he speaks over your sin and your opposition. He says, it is finished. Like see, like see the blood running down his face and understand that this is what you rightly deserve. This is what your sin looks like. And you can see his love, his mercy towards you as every drop falls. And look into the empty tomb. He's not here. He's risen, as he said. Believe in him and you will be saved. And you can do that right now. The, the promise of the gospel is that those who believe will not perish, but have everlasting life. And this promise is offered to all who will repent and believe. And God keeps his promises because his promises are blood-bought. You can trust Christ today and be saved. We'll take the, the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. And that's a, a picture of what it is that Christ has done. His shed blood and his body broken that we might have life. The Bible is clear. You must repent and believe on Christ and be saved or you remain under the wrath of God. And you will not be able to say at Judgment Day, I didn't know. I didn't know. Nobody ever told us. We told you. You're here. And you have the chance today to repent and believe the gospel. And why would you not? Why would you not run to the Savior who shed his blood to save you in your sin? So wherever you are, whether you're a follower of Christ, and be thankful and pursue hard after Christ. All the more. If you're struggling, you're in sin, man, look to the finished work of Christ in your fight and in the, the difficult situations. You can look and see it is finished. For the one who's comfortable in his sin, doesn't see any issue, I can live however I want Monday through Saturday and I'll be at church on Sunday and everything's going to be fine and you're playing games. Repent and believe in Christ. And for those of you in a room this size, I'm sure there's more than one that are not followers of Christ. Believe in Christ. That is our only hope. It's not our own effort. It's in the finished work of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for what the cross represents. Not just one death, but for those who are in Christ, all of our deaths. And the resurrection life is our life. And so I, I pray for everyone in here, 
in different places, but our hope is still the same. It's looking to Christ for, for the person that's, that's pursuing you, loves you. I, I pray you would just encourage them all the more to look to their Savior in love and joy. For the one that's struggling, may you give rest and peace because the work is not ours, it's yours. So we can rest in you. For the one that's comfortable in, in sin, I pray you'd give a very uneasy conscience that they would be a prick to the heart when they look at the cross. And for the person in here that's not a follower of Christ, I pray that today you would save. Not for our glory, for your glory, for our joy, for the eternal good of that individual, we pray you would save. And it's in Christ's name that we do pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.